This morning's reading comes from John 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nathaniel. I'm part of the team here at BPCC, and it is my privilege to be opening up these words of God with us this morning. But first, uh, let's pray and ask that the Lord will really apply these to our hearts. Dear Lord, we want to thank you for bringing us here this morning. We want to thank you for who you are. We want to thank you for the word you've given us. Father God, we want to ask you that as we walk through this passage this morning, that you will really apply it to our hearts, Lord. Please give us insight into what we're seeing in front of us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Can I get the foldbacks turned down? Thanks, Nathan. Doubting Thomas. To be honest, I feel pretty bad for Thomas. He gets a pretty bad rep. Uh, This is what he's remembered for. He is remembered for doubting. The other disciples didn't get nicknamed for their faults. Peter, Peter had a problem with fear, right? But we don't call him Petrified Peter or Peter the Pansy, or anything like that. James, he was pretty judgy as a guy, but we don't hear James the judgmental. But we do hear doubting Thomas. But but doubt, doubt is a common, perhaps even an essential part of our Christian journey, right? I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, have experienced doubt before, or perhaps we even are doubting right now. Most young people, like myself, uh, who grow up in the faith, coming in through church, coming here every Sunday, hearing about Jesus from being small children, at some point we come to a point where we're doubting, we're questioning, is this faith that my parents have taught me, is this really my faith? Is this really true? Those of us who come to know Jesus as adults will generally go through a time of doubting, a decision, a thinking about and wrestling with whether this claim that Jesus has to be God of our lives, to be Lord of all creation, whether this really could be true. Maybe you're here today and you're on that journey at some point, maybe beginning that journey, maybe in the middle of that journey. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you've got these questions about God that you're trying to get answers for, wondering whether he really is real, whether he really is loving and available like he claims to be. 
If that's you, then you're in exactly the right place here this morning because our Bible passage here, uh, this story of Thomas, this is going to address our struggle to believe in Jesus, in his resurrection, in who he claims to be. Because doubt isn't just something at the start of the Christian journey. Doubt is something which often crops up in the midst of our journey as well. It's something which comes up particularly as Christians when we're slipping away from following Jesus or when we're confronted by something in the world, by something which really shows us how broken, how really broken the world we live in is. Charles Spurgeon, he's a man nicknamed the Prince of Preachers, he reflected on doubt, saying, I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and again doubt his interest in Jesus. I think that when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. Doubt is a part of following Jesus in a world which is broken and which is firmly against him. And this passage where the most famous of doubters has his doubt erased is of huge importance to every single one of us. So if you're here today, you're struggling with doubt, as most of us do, Thomas's encounter with Jesus can speak to you. For a couple of weeks now, we've been in this sermon series titled Meeting Jesus, Encounters from the Gospel of John. And so far, we've looked at Jesus' interactions with a confused minister, with a social outcast, with a condemned woman, and a devoted follower, and then last week, an anxious politician. And this week, we watch on as this disciple who has been following Jesus through all of this who has been there through each and every one of these encounters, as he has his doubts in the resurrection erased by a fresh encounter with Jesus. And as we do that, we'll see the reality of doubt, the resolution to doubt, and our response to doubt. So let's start by looking at the doubts which earned Thomas his nickname. Our passage begins with verse 24, now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. Now, what's this talking about? Uh, let me bring you up to speed really quick. We're jumping in towards the end of chapter 20. Uh, and now at the start of chapter 20, the, some, of, some of the followers of Jesus had shown up to his tomb to anoint his dead body to find that it wasn't there. He was risen. He was gone. And then Jesus appears to Mary, one of those followers, and then we read that on the evening of the first day of the week, that's Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. But Thomas had missed it. He wasn't there when Jesus showed up. Now, I've missed out on some solid discussions and pretty funny happenings when I've missed out on being at Bible study or I've missed out at being at church. And when you can't make it along to either of those, you're missing out. But this really takes the cake. Imagine showing up half an hour late to growth group and everyone goes, guess what? Jesus just showed up. And not only is it Jesus showing up in person, but on the day that he defeated death itself, the most important day in the history of the world. And when Thomas is told about that, he's got some pretty serious doubts. 
In fact, he openly declares that he does not believe it could be true. And in doing so, he's become a bit of a household name for having cynical doubt, being a, a doubting Thomas. And so this must be right on top of Thomas's list of things I regret saying. Like, I've personally said some silly things in growth group, slip of the brain or something or other, or said something I haven't really thought about, and I might be embarrassed for five minutes. But imagine this. He has his doubts, and it's in the Bible for 2,000 years. But maybe we don't actually give Thomas enough credit here. If I was Thomas, if I was in his situation, I probably would have reacted in much the same way as he did. Thomas has followed Jesus for so long. He's walked with him. He's sat under his teaching. He's seen Jesus perform these amazing miracles. He's even seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead just a few weeks earlier. And when when Jesus had done that, in that story, Thomas declares that he is willing to die for Jesus. That is how firmly he is following Jesus. But Thomas, like all the other disciples as well, He hadn't really understood who Jesus is. He hadn't really understood what Jesus meant that he had come to defeat the greatest enemy of all. He hadn't understood what Jesus meant that he had come to suffer and to die. They were still hoping, they were still convincing themselves that they had a warrior Messiah who was going to raise up an army to kill all the Romans. But instead, Jesus was killed by the Romans. He was nailed to the cross, he was lifted up, and he died. He didn't even put up a fight. Thomas was devastated. He was confused, along with all the other disciples as well. Everything that he thought had come crashing down. His dreams of a glorious victory were gone. After all that, after a weekend of grieving, after a weekend of hiding in fear, he rocks up to meet with the other disciples And they tell him that Jesus has risen again. He was just there. I can understand why Thomas was doubtful. I wouldn't want to go putting my hope out there again. Once your hope has been crushed, you don't want to have hope again. So I would have probably reacted in a similar way to how Thomas does. Until I put my finger in the holes in his hands and my hand into his side, I will not believe. So if you're in a similar position to Thomas, if you've been following Jesus for some time now and you're experiencing doubt, maybe something happened and you're like, I can't believe that God would let that happen. I can't believe that God didn't do this in that situation. Much like Thomas. It's not something to be ashamed of. It does not mean that your faith is exceptionally weak or that it's not really there or anything like that. Doubt is one of the devil's favourite tools. It's one that he uses very often. Remember, remember back in Genesis, that was doubt. Did God really say that? Does God really mean the best for you? You're not actually going to die if you eat that fruit. God's just not quite right on that one. Doubt. Thomas doubted. And he's not described as being a fake disciple or as lacking in real faith. Even though he had been following Jesus for so long, he had seen so much, he still still struggled with doubt. And so the doubt itself is not a reason to think that there's something wrong with you or something wrong with your faith. 
and Thomas expresses his doubt in much the same way that we often do as well. He puts down conditions of a supernatural sign that has to be fulfilled before he is going to believe in what, what Jesus has said. He says, unless I see those nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In fact, the original there, the original language is so much more emphatic. The ESV carries that feeling across well. Unless I see this and do this, I will never believe. It's not going to happen out of the question. I have to physically put my hands in there. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And when we struggle with doubt, we often put similar conditions on our faith, right? They could be conditions of a dramatic supernatural sign. Um, I remember being a, being a doubting teenager, maybe 12 or 13 or something, and praying to God and saying, God, if you're really there, you'll turn my pillow into gold right now. And it, it didn't happen. Um, I was talking to Ben, our community pastor, during the week, and he was saying, he rem- remembers being about nine years old and praying to God and saying, God, if you're really there, there'll be a million dollars in cash under my bed. And what's it there? They can also be conditions of desperation. We say, God, if you're really there, then you're going to heal this broken bone, or you're going to heal my friend's disease, or you're going to pay these bills right now, you're going to take them away, you're going to to take away this debt. If you're really there, then you'll do this. Or they can be conditions of desire. God, I will believe in you if you make that girl or that guy fall for me. God, I will believe in you if you give me this job that I'm applying for. God, I will believe in you if you make this a winning lotto ticket. But whatever the conditions that we put on God are, and they're they're different for all of us, what we really need is not for God to miraculously fulfill our conditions. Thomas, right? remember, he had followed Jesus for a long time. He had seen all the miracles you could ask for, even someone being raised from the dead. He had watched Jesus heal the sick. He had watched Jesus give sight to the blind. He had watched Jesus show power and control over the wind and the waves, over nature itself. So what Thomas really needed wasn't more signs, wasn't more supernatural wonders. What what Thomas really needed was Jesus. He didn't need the holes in his hands or the hole in his side. What he really needed was Jesus himself and to realise who Jesus really is. And that is the resolution to our doubt, meeting Jesus. That's what we see as the story moves forward a week in verse 26. All the disciples are gathered in the house again, doors locked for fear of the Jews who had killed Jesus. And once more, Jesus appears in the middle of the room, as he did before, with that same greeting, peace be with you. And Jesus turns to Thomas, and he turns not with judgment, not with rebuke for his doubts, not with disappointment, but with an invitation. He calls out to Thomas. He says, I'm here. Come on, put your fingers here. Put your finger into these holes. See my hands. Put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, the original words for stop doubting and believe are a little bit tricky to translate, uh, but directly they say, don't be unbelieving, but believe. Jesus is not calling out Thomas for his failings. He's 
calling him to an attitude of humility and faithfulness towards God, to see and to accept who he really is. But there's no mention of Thomas taking up that offer, right? We don't read of Thomas coming up, yep, checks out, checks out. Thomas doesn't actually, as far as we know, ever fulfill those conditions that he had put on Jesus. Rather, Thomas's reaction is one of immediate and complete faith because he has suddenly realised who Jesus really is. Because he didn't need to put his hands into those holes. He didn't need to touch and to feel these signs. Even though he had sworn that he would never believe, he would never believe until he had done that, he didn't really need God to fulfil his requirements for another miracle. What he really needed was to meet Jesus and realise who he is. And we see that Thomas does realise this, finally, with this simple, this so powerful confession of faith. He cries out, my Lord and my God. Now this isn't a blasphemous exclamation, you know, you might hear around at work or around the place, someone might be surprised by something or shocked and they'll cry out, my Lord, or they'll cry out, my God. This is not what Thomas is saying here, it's not an exclamation. Even the case in the original language is one of a declaration. He is stating, he is declaring who Jesus is. He has this sudden realisation that Jesus isn't just a worker of miracles. He's not just a convincing teacher with some cool moral standards to believe in. Jesus is my Lord and my God. These are the words of a doubting disciple whose doubts have been completely erased by an encounter with a risen Jesus and a realisation of who he really is. By the way, if you ever have someone tell you, knock on your door or something, or have a chat to you and tell you that Jesus never really claims to be God, this is one of many, many examples that make it clear that Jesus did. At any other time in the Bible, whenever someone is addressed as God, there's some confusion or something, and maybe a, a human is confronted by someone pretty cool like Peter or Paul who can do some signs, or Moses, or even an angel, and they, they, they say, oh, God, it's you. They, that person will immediately stop them and say, no, don't be a blasphemer. I'm not God. I'm just a, just a human, or even I'm just an angel. I'm not actually God himself. But here, Jesus accepts and receives Thomas's worship because he really is God himself. And Thomas has finally realised who Jesus is. My Lord and my God. Now for Thomas, this is a joyful realisation. Everything has clicked. He can see Jesus and he finally realises who it is that he's been following all this time. But for many, many of us, accepting the fact that Jesus is Lord and God, means accepting that as Lord and God, he has an authority over our lives. And that can be an obstacle to us, an obstacle to faith, a reason for us to be doubting. Writer Tim Chester, he says, people don't believe because they don't like the implications of belief. They don't want to say, my Lord and my God, they want to say, I am my Lord. I am my God. In John 14, 5-7, Jesus tells Thomas that to see him is to see God. 
That would be an outrageous claim if not for the fact that Jesus had been raised by God from the dead. Thomas now realises the implication that we must serve Jesus as our Lord and our God. And that's what Thomas does. Uh, We hear uh, from church tradition that Thomas spent his entire life furthering the gospel of who Jesus is. He even died a martyr um, by tradition. He died a martyr in India, having served and proclaimed God's word all the way there. But all too often, our doubt and our unbelief is just, just a mask to cover our pride, to cover the fact that we don't really want to accept God as the Lord of our lives. We don't want to accept who Jesus is and what he says and the divine authority that has because we want to live by our own rules. Maybe that's true for you. I know it's definitely been true for me in the past when I was thinking about this, reflecting on the times when I've doubted in my many 22 years of Christian experience. I, it really struck me that this is probably true for me. When I doubt, it's not so much that I'm questioning the, the facts, questioning the evidence, questioning the reality of who God is, but I just don't want to do it. I don't want to do what is right. And so I question whether God really isn't there and really can tell me to do it. Because to accept Jesus is to accept the authority that he has over us. But there's an obvious problem here, you might be thinking. Nathaniel, you've missed something pretty clear. It's all well and good for Thomas. It's well, all well and good for the disciples. They actually had Jesus show up in their midst. Peace be with you. They could see him there. They knew he was resurrected. They could talk to him. They could hear directly from him. They could ask him questions and they could hear exactly what he's got to say about them and how they should be living. I don't get that. I can't see Jesus. I can't talk to him and interact with him physically there. Why should I believe? Why should Thomas's words apply to me? Well, that brings us to our third and our final point. And that's where the last few verses come in. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When Jesus says, because you've seen me, you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen me yet have believed, he's not casting a a denigration on Thomas. He's not putting him down. He's not saying, oh, your faith isn't quite enough, not quite up to scratch. It's not a comment about Thomas. It's a comment about everyone else because all the disciples didn't really believe until they had seen Jesus. They all believed the week before when he had shown up to everyone else. No, Jesus is using Thomas's profession as an opportunity to proclaim a blessing on everyone who would come to faith from the disciples' teaching, who would come to faith without Jesus being there physically in person. That is everyone, everyone who would hear this good news of Jesus and put their faith in him. Everyone from the people the disciples would go out and tell the next week to the people who would read their writings, letters in the first century, 
to the people who would read the scripture and hear about Jesus and put their faith in him. Every single century, every single year, every single day, from that day until and including today. And so John pauses the narrative here to make this point very, very clear. He speaks to everyone who would read the words he was writing, whether in the first century or the 21st century. He makes this statement, he writes, so that we may believe and have life in Jesus' name. He writes so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is really the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we can have that same life. That's true for everybody. That's true for us here today. This book, this book is written so that we, the ones who believe without seeing, the ones who don't touch Jesus in person, so that we can encounter Jesus, so that we can meet our Lord. Through this series, we've seen how he interacts with those who do encounter them, who do encounter him. We've watched a string of different people. We've watched them come to Jesus. We've watched the nature of Christ in the way that he interacts with the people who come to him. We've seen a confused minister, unsure on what to make of the scriptures he knew so well. We see a social outcast pushed away from society. We see a condemned woman brought out shamed, condemned to death. We see a devoted follower. We see an anxious politician, the man who put Jesus to death. And now we see a doubtful disciple. All these things are written not just as cool stories of long dead people, not just as good moral advice. They do all of those things, but they are written so that we can encounter Jesus, that we can know that he truly is the Son of God, he truly is the Messiah, that God truly did raise him from the dead because he truly did die to pay the penalty for our sins. And that by believing, we may have life in his name. The claim of the Bible is that this is the word of God. We can know Jesus through it. And it is more than that. When we do meet Jesus, when we do know him, when we do put our faith in him, God isn't just up there with a celestial list. Tick off, cool, they're going to get into heaven when they get here. Have fun, see you when you arrive. That's not what happens. When we do, the teaching of that same Bible is that when we do come into relationship with him, that he is with us and in us. He works in our hearts by his spirit that he guides us and he blesses us and he grows us every day of our lives and that he never leaves us and he never forsakes us. So no matter how alone you feel, if you're here today not having put your faith in Jesus and you're questioning whether that could possibly be true, whether there really can be a God who cares for you, he is and he does. If you have put your faith in Jesus and you feel like you've just been wandering, you've walked far away, and is God really there? He was there every step of the way. There was no point where he wasn't there, and he still is there with you now. So here's my challenge to you. If you haven't encountered Jesus, if you doubt his claims about who he is, if you go, well, 
that's cool, but you don't really have enough facial hair to tell me what the truth is. If that's you, then how about you try to meet him? How about instead of just taking my word for it, you take his word for it? Grab a Bible. If you don't have one, I'd love to give one to you. Or get the Bible app. It's really, really handy. Go and meet him the way that he has approached us, the way he has revealed himself to us. Don't just skim the words on that page either, but soak them in. Dwell on them, think about them, and speak back to God in response as you process them. Um, Start with one of the Gospels, maybe. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Um, They're great places to start in the Bible. At the start of the New Testament, uh, sort of around here, um, pick up that Bible. Read about Jesus. See who he is. See who he claims to be. And don't just hear from God, but speak back to God. Spend some time talking to him. Tell him about what you're reading there. Even just tell him why he's not really there and you're just talking to an empty space. Tell him about what you're struggling with. And as you do that, I really do believe that you will meet Jesus. Or maybe you're already a Christian. Maybe you've put your faith in Jesus and you're following him. If you're doing well in that faith journey, if you're saying, yes, I'm really experiencing God every day, I'm living out that faith and that's great, that is awesome. Let me encourage you, keep on doing that. Keep on walking with him. Keep on hearing from him. Keep on speaking back to him. If you're here and you're struggling with doubts, maybe life's just a bit hectic at the moment, things are crazy, stuff is happening and you're wondering why God would let it happen. Maybe you talk to your friends and they say that they're experiencing God and he's really there, but he just doesn't seem real to you. If Jesus is really really there, then he should give you a sign. He should make it worth following him. Now, I might only be 22, like I said, but I do know that feeling. Doubt is one of the devil's favourite tools to try and lead us astray, to try and confuse us, to try and separate us from the God who loves us so much and whom we love so much. If that is you, then be encouraged. You are not alone. God is there. This does not mean that your faith is extra weak or that you're not a real Christian or anything like that. It's not just you who goes through this. The same God who called you to walk with him, the same God who filled you with his love, with his spirit, is still there. He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. So pick up your Bible. Go through it. Spend some serious time just spending time with God. Speak back to him. Pray to him. If you get something which you struggle with, if you're at a point where you just, I just, I just can't bring myself to do that, I'm, that's, that's something which comes with being in struggles in life as well. Grab a Christian friend. Say, hey, can you pray with me? Can you read the Bible with me? If no one jumps to mind, just come along and grab one of the staff members. I would love to sit down and pray with you and read the Bible with you. Like Hebrews 13 reminds us, our God will never leave you or forsake you. So, if you've been wrestling with doubt, if you've been following Jesus and you feel like he might be distant or you're wondering if he's not really there at all, if you're like Thomas and you've seen Jesus do crazy stuff before but still there's doubts there. Things don't seem to be going quite according to, be plan, according to plan. Or if you're not following him at all and you're just questioning all this stuff about who he claims to be and the massive claim to be the saviour of the world and God himself. Either way, he calls out to you today. He calls out to you not with a crazy supernatural sign, 
but with an invitation into a personal relationship with him. God has given us his word so that we can know him, so that by believing we can have life in his name. So don't just take my word for it, but go and have a look in his. If you humbly seek him, he may just powerfully use this to reveal himself to you. Because what we really need is to hear the voice of our Lord, just like Thomas did. Join with me as we pick up his word, as we respond to him in prayer, and as we declare with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Dear Lord, we thank you that we can be here today. We thank you that we can come together, that we can spend time worshipping you and hearing from your word, Lord. I pray that you'll be with all of us as we go through our weeks, Lord, that if we're struggling with doubt and uncertainty, Lord, that you'll really wipe those away with a fresh encounter with you, that you'll remind and challenge us to spend time knowing you better, Lord, to spend time hearing and reading about you in your word. Father God, I pray for a sense of, a sense of peace and a sense of your love and kindness on every person here, Lord, especially those of your children who are struggling, Lord, in their walk with you. I pray that you'll be with us. Please bless us and guide us as we stand, as we worship you, and as we go out into our lives, Lord, seeking to serve you and know you in every area of life. Pray all these things in your most holy of names. Amen. May the peace of God be with you. Amen. Let's respond in song. Spoke your name into me.